I don't think Vijay was primarily motivated by money, to be honest. He's the kind of person, unlike a lot of billionaires, you couldn't really say he's a self-made man. You know, he was born into a wealthy family. It wasn't clear he was going to inherit his father's empire, but he did. Then, like a lot of rich people, Vijay is convinced that he's smarter than everybody else and that huge amounts of wealth are sort of his sign of his intelligence and his capability. He had a very good business model for Kingfisher Airlines and he's a very smart man. He certainly would have been aware that from a business point of view, if he'd stuck to the low cost model, it would have been the best. But I don't think money and business was his main motivation. He wanted that wow factor. He wanted jaws to drop, praise him to the heavens which they wouldn't do if he just had a very efficient, well-run, low-cost airline. He wanted people to be blown away and to think that he was a genius. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming at you live from Atlanta, Georgia, the ATL, the 404, from a room atop a garage. Hope the sun is shining wherever you are. Let's get out there and carpe that diem, make the most of these 24 hours that we will never, ever get back. I have a great show for you today. My guest is Dylan Mohan Gray. He is the director of the first installment of Netflix's global sensation, Bad Boy Billionaires India. The film Dylan directed is called The King of Good Times. It's about a guy named Vijay Malya, who is the heir to a brewing fortune and founder of Kingfisher Airlines. We talk about how Vijay's ambition got the best of him and landed him in some very hot water, financially speaking. I'll tell you more about VJ and about Dylan in just a minute. But first, I want to say that, uh, hey, I love hearing from listeners. So why don't you shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I want to know what you think of the show. I want to know which episodes have been your favorite and who you'd like to hear on this show. Another way to do that is to join the Crazy Money Listeners group on Facebook. Just go to Facebook, type Crazy Money Listeners in the search bar, and you'll find it there. You know how Facebook works. I don't need to get into more details than that. Hey, one listener I heard from this week is named Mukun Ramachandran. He's my old colleague from my days at Yahoo, working on the sales team at Yahoo. Hello, old Yahoo people. I love your purpleness. And it was so nice to hear from this guy. I haven't talked to him in like at least 10 years. He was saying that he enjoyed the show and that fills my heart with warmth, by the way. But interestingly, when he replied back to my reply, when I asked him, well, who would you want to hear on the show? He said, you know, you should interview is this woman named Lori Santos. She's a professor at Yale, and she teaches a course about well-being, which is the most popular course in the history of Yale. And she has this podcast called The Happiness Project. I believe that's what it's called. And I replied to him gleefully saying, you know why I know all about Lori Santos? Because she has been a guest on Crazy Money, as have 85 other amazing people in addition to Dylan Mohan Gray. So what I reminded him about and what I'd like to ask you all to consider, and I know you don't have dozens of hours every week to listen to Crazy Money, but I do appreciate the time you dedicate to it. There are 85 other great episodes of this podcast going all the way back to early 2019. Take a minute to scroll back through the old episodes. You will find some guests that I know will interest you. Here are a couple of my favorites. Johnny Lee Nguyen. I recorded this episode live at the San Diego Comedy Festival last year. Johnny's an old friend of mine. She's married to my buddy, Brian, and I was always intrigued by her story. Yes, today she is an entrepreneur and a mom and a housewife, and she lives in a beautiful home at the top of a hill in San Diego, but she's also a Vietnamese refugee who, as a six-year-old, spent two years in refugee camps in, I believe, the Philippines and Thailand. Her story is incredible, and it's a great reminder about how powerful the American experience is and what amazing resilience she, her family, and all the refugees that chose to come to the United States, what they went through and what they bring to our country. Love that interview with Gianni. Another guy I really enjoyed speaking with was Brad Klontz. He's a financial therapist who works with high net worth individuals, including billionaires. And one of the things that really opened my eyes about what Brad did, or maybe put into words something that I guess I knew, but never really put this way. I was laughing with him and saying, oh, Brad, what do billionaires possibly have to worry about? And he laughed at my sarcasm and he said, Paul, it's funny you say that, but you know, when a billionaire looks in the mirror and doesn't like what he sees, he can't fool himself that money will solve his problems. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Because I think we all do. We all pretend like if we had just a little bit more of this or that money, mostly being that that then our life would be perfect. And that's not the case. I also talked to Nobel Prize winner, Sir Angus Deaton. He's a Princeton economist 
who co-authored a paper concluding that there are declining marginal returns to happiness and that really passed an amount of money every year that is enough. He says it's $75,000. You could argue whether it's a little bit more or not. That past that number, more money won't make you happy. It's a really intriguing conversation and concept that I was honored to have in his office right there at Princeton. I also have had other great chats with people like Adam Carolla, Dr. Drew Pinsky, Ed Roland, the lead singer of the band Collective Soul, and others from the world of publishing and broadcasting, et cetera. So scroll back in your show notes there and check out some of the old episodes of Crazy Money after you listen to this interview with Dylan Mohan Gray. Let me tell you about him. He is the director of The King of Good Times. This is the pilot film of the new Netflix series, Bad Boy Billionaires India, which has been the most viewed show in India for much of October. The film chronicles the rise and fall of Vijay Malia, heir to a brewing fortune and founder of Kingfisher Airlines. Vijay was known for his excessive lifestyle, over-the-top personality, and lavish investments in sexy, high-profile ventures like cricket teams and Formula One racing teams. Despite his massive influence, Vijay is accused of money laundering and fraud, which is said to have arisen from financial recklessness and overreaching at his growing airline. In this episode, Dylan and I discuss not only Vijay's story, but how his excessive ambition, overconfidence, and lack of a sense of enough got to him, and how others who already have way more than they need fall prey to these weaknesses or tendencies and find themselves in big, big trouble when they never really needed the additional money in the first place. An award-winning documentarian, Dylan also directed a film called Fire in the Blood, which explores the high price of AIDS drugs in the developing world. The film was an official selection of the Sundance Film Festival, and the Wall Street Journal called it powerfully cinematic and vitally important. I know you'll find that film interesting, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Dylan Gray. Ladies and gentlemen, this is he. Dylan Gray, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, where are you talking to me from today? I'm in Mumbai, one of the world epicenters of the COVID pandemic at the moment. <laughs> Let's just start right there. What's going on with COVID? How is India dealing with the pandemic? Well, there are lots of cases. There are lots of fatalities. There's a lot of wrangling between different levels of government, which I guess you would have seen in the United States as well. I mean, I've done a lot of work in the public health area, and it's not a strength of Indian governance. I'm not sure there is a strength of Indian governance, but public health is not a strength. Although, unlike the United States, there is a public health care system here so that even the poorest people can get treated. But it's been woefully underfunded. And unfortunately, you know, people have tended to, even politicians, push people into the private health care system, which has proven woefully inadequate during the COVID crisis as they've sort of fled for the hills. So I'm sure there are a lot of lessons in there in all of this. For the future, I'm just not very confident those lessons will be learned. Well, we could do a whole podcast on that, but that's a different topic for a different day. You've had a very interesting couple of weeks. Your new docuseries has appeared on Netflix. It's called Bad Boy Billionaires. Why did you want to make this docuseries? Well, I have to say it wasn't my idea. Uh, Netflix came to me and they'd gone pretty far down the road with the idea by the time they called me. It was originally pitched, as far as I've been told, it was originally pitched in the UK to the Netflix global nonfiction team as a featured documentary about Vijay Malia. And at some point during those conversations, they were very keen on exploring the possibility of doing a documentary series about not just Mr. Malia, but at least three other similar types of characters from India, which is what eventually happened. And a lot of research went into figuring out who those other three would be. So in the end, there are four films, one of which has not yet been released because of legal wrangling here in India, hopefully will be released soon, four different directors. And mine uh, is the film about Vijay Malia, which is the opening film or the pilot of this series. And it's been immensely well-received and very, very widely viewed here in India, just based on word of mouth, the three films that have launched so far on Netflix. And as far as I know, Netflix is sort of waiting for the other film to be released so that they can then do a promotional push internationally. Because whereas these gentlemen are all household names here in India, they're not as widely known, obviously, in most of the rest of the world. Let me just clarify, you directed The King of Good Times, the others, they're not your films. That's correct. Okay, cool. Yeah. I had a choice of characters and did my own research and uh, then decided to do DJ Malia because fascinated me for various reasons. He's a fascinating guy. Will you tell us a little bit about him and what did you find so compelling about his story? 
Well, I think that what I found compelling about it is that, you know, I've been living uh, here in Mumbai for about 15 years. And during this period, Vijay Malia had become a very, very prominent person in India to the point where I think today you would probably be very hard-pressed to find anybody, even in the remotest village of the country, who doesn't know him. You know, he was a sort of larger-than-life figure, extremely flamboyant, was famous for a very flashy lifestyle, huge parties, yachts, private planes, owned a Formula One team, uh, bought an (laughs) airline, which became the fanciest, most luxurious airline possibly in the world in terms of carriers for the public. And... You know, had mansions everywhere, was, you know, very involved in horse racing, all kinds of things. Slightly colorful personal life as well, and married between two and three times, depending on who you ask. So the thing that actually really was his basic claim to fame was that he ran the biggest alcohol company in India, which became, under his tutelage, the second largest in the world. You know, and alcohol, I think, is something that foreigners don't really associate with India. In fact, you know, the vast majority of Indian adults don't drink alcohol. But obviously, there's a huge population in this country, and the consumption among those who do drink is is quite strong. So, you know, for many years, Vijamalia was the biggest taxpayer in the country because the taxes on alcohol are very high. And Indian politicians basically have to be very anti-alcohol and always sort of dabbling with the idea of prohibition. And that goes all the way back to Gandhi. So unlike other countries, you will never ever see an Indian politician of any stature, you know, toasting with champagne, for example, that would just be unthinkable because it would be very bad for their for their public image. So, in a way, Vijay Malia, by being the sort of most famous liquor purveyor in the country, pretty much the only liquor baron who was known to the public by name, you know, sort of set himself against the conservative cultural and political elements in the country, and. By doing so, you know, his later sort of what we portray in the film, you know, is his dream project was to set up Kingfisher Airlines. And that put him on a collision course with these conservative forces who had been sort of, you know, looking for ways to get him for many decades to the point where now he is basically living in self-imposed exile in London, having to make do with just two mansions. Poor guy. And uh, Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's... Uh, tragic in its own way. But uh, yeah, so he is there essentially stateless at this point because he is an Indian citizen, but his passport has been revoked. He's fighting extradition back to India. The Indian government is trying to uh, bring him back and put him on trial for fraud uh, on a grand scale. So in a nutshell, the character of Vijay Malia. So how did Vijay find himself running United Breweries? Well, Vijay Malia's father, Vital Malia, was actually the one who, he didn't start United Breweries. United Breweries is a company that goes all the way back to the, as far as I recall, the 1850s. It was started, you know, under the British uh, Raj. And at some point, you know, around the time of independence, many of these British companies that were working in India at independence actually fell into the hands of sort of mid-level clerks because the British, you know, were quite terrified at the prospect of having to do business under an Indian political system or a native system, I guess they would have called it at that time. So, you know, there was sort of a fire sale of companies, United Breweries being one of those. And Vital Malia, who was actually a fairly low, you know, low-level uh, clerk in United Breweries, managed to, I think it was another company first, but it's through a series of events, he managed to gain control of United Breweries and became a very, very wealthy man, even with all the political problems and restrictions. Alcohol is an excellent business to be in in India. And, you know, it's quite hard to get into the alcohol business because, you know, you have to have a lot of political connections. You have to grease a lot of palms. It's always been that way and I'm sure very much still the case. So if you can manage to have a licensed alcohol business, you'll make a lot of money. And that's what Pinto <laughs> Malia did. And he was very astute, shrewd businessman, grew the company from pretty much a single brewery into a company that had manufacturing units all over the country. And then at some point in time, you know, he was quite estranged from Vijay, in fact, because Vijay's mother and father split up when he was a kid. It wasn't really clear whether Vijay was actually going to inherit anything from his father. 
he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and he lived as a quite a spoiled kid when he visited his father. But most of the time he lived with his mother in Calcutta and they lived a relatively modest life there. And it wasn't clear whether Vijay would actually be chosen to succeed his father. His father did have other children, but I think Vijay's luck was that he didn't have any more sons. So that Vijay did end up succeeding his father and taking over the company at an unexpected moment when his father died quite young. And Vijay was only 28 years old, and suddenly the reins of power were thrust into his hands. Unlike his son, Vijay's dad was actually quite low-key and seemed to appreciate the sensitive nature of the alcohol business. According to everybody that knows both of these men, or knew both of these men, because obviously his father died in the 80s, there probably couldn't be two more opposite individuals. His father was a very, very miserly, you know, all his suits came from Marks and Spencer's. He had 20 of the same suit. As one of the journalists in our film says, he seemed to pay to keep his name out of the papers. It was actually when we were doing, putting the film together, it was actually very hard to find archival footage of him and photos even because he seemed to really make a point of making sure nobody knew what he looked like and keeping his name out, like I said, keeping his name out of the limelight. Whereas Vijay, you know, was absolutely diametrically opposed to that. He would do everything to make sure that, you know, the spotlight was on him at all times. Very, very flashy, very flamboyant. You know, many would say a publicity hound. In fact, he made his own sort of persona, the embodiment of his alcohol business because alcohol advertising at a point in time became banned in India so that he essentially used himself as a vehicle to market his Kingfisher initially Kingfisher beer, and then there was a whole range of other Kingfisher labels and products, verticals that evolved you know, later on into Kingfisher Airlines, which was his dream project, as I mentioned earlier. Well, certainly flamboyant, he was kind of a genius in some ways. I mean, he pushed the envelope in ways that the country had never seen. And did I have it right that in 1986, India actually got its first pub? That's right. So even today, in most places in India, the idea of a pub is quite a foreign idea. So What you normally have in Indian cities, even now, is you have high-end, very expensive, uh, by American standards, I think most Americans would be shocked at the prices of high-end bars, which generally are in fancy hotels, four- and five-star hotels. And then you have very, very low-end, sort of almost like dive bars, I guess you would say. But those are places where women generally would not feel safe going, for example. So it tends to be almost exclusively men. And those are very sort of grungy, dark, dingy places, (laughs) quite disreputable. So the pub idea where, you know, people could go and it's affordable, it's safe, it's, you know, well-lit, and (laughs) women can go and feel comfortable there was actually quite a foreign idea. And as we talk about in the film, you know, that was something that Vijay sort of pioneered in Bangalore, which was, you know, a center of a lot of young people because of the IT boom. So many people from India and around the world, young people were converging on Bangalore. And, you know, this pub culture started in the mid to late 80s and, you know, caught on like wildfire. And that was something that Vijay Malia and Kingfisher really pioneered. It was revolutionary. I know it seems strange to a Western audience, but it was something that was truly revolutionary. That was very, very quite unheard of for a woman to go to a a drinking establishment in India, unless she was from the the elite that would be able to go to a four or five star hotel in order to drink. That's a very, very small segment of the population. And is the basis of the lack of alcohol consumption, is that all religious, historical, or some combination of the two? Both. Well, first of all, what Vijay Malia and his father, their company makes something that in India is called Indian Made Foreign Liquor. So it's IMFL. Okay, so there's been a traditional distinction in India between what is traditional liquor, which is also known as country liquor, and this IMFL. IMFL is basically Indian versions of beer and spirits that are essentially coming from outside of India. Country liquor is local hooch, essentially. (laughs) Moonshine, Um, it's Indian moonshine. And it's traditionally been very cheap. And one of the things that Vijay Malia and his father did were to try to chip away at the market and the regulatory environment for country liquor in order to expand the footprint for Indian-made foreign liquor. So even as the name suggests, even among liquor drinkers, there is a perception that Indian-made foreign liquor is an Indian thing. It's a foreign, alien 
product and a foreign alien culture of, you know, amusement, let's say, because there is traditional Indian liquors that have become quite marginalized due to the efforts of these IMFL makers who work on much bigger margins and probably generally pay off politicians to a much higher degree. So they, they've created a regulatory environment that has sort of squeezed out country liquor. And over and above that, you know, there are traditional intoxicants in India, notably bang, which is a cannabis byproduct, which is consumed at religious festivals. It's not as if Indians do not consume any intoxicants, even traditionally. It's just that there has been this sense that alcohol was used to weaken the resolve of Indians during the colonial period mm. and has actually been seen as a very negative alien element in post-colonial life as well, to the point where there's a big vote bank to be accessed if you advocate prohibition. And prohibition has been instituted in many states in India at one point or other. Uh, Gujarat, from whence uh, Narendra Modi comes, has been basically the one state that has had full-on prohibition for decades. But the way it works is that you can't openly buy alcohol, but everybody has their sort of supplier and the politicians and police are all sort of party to that procurement. So Funny how that works. <laughs> yeah. If you go to somebody's house in Gujarat, much of the time they will openly be drinking alcohol and they will have you know a nice home bar with many varieties of alcohol. And I know I've experienced the same thing when I was in Pakistan, which again, you know, is uh, basically a, an Islamic country where, you know, alcohol is officially forbidden, but very widely consumed. Sounds like South Carolina. <laughs> yeah, maybe Utah, perhaps. <laughs> but even in our state, in Mumbai, our state is Maharashtra. Officially, you need a license to drink. Now and again, you will be asked for this license, but usually the people ask for it, you know, I'll give you an option to procure it quickly <laughs> because most people don't <laughs> carry that around. One of the things that fascinated me a lot about Vijay and about this story and doing this film was India's love-hate relationship with alcohol. Because as I said, you know, a lot of politicians flirt with prohibition. It's very popular among women in the lower economic echelons because there is a huge amount of alcohol abuse among the men in those in those segments, which, you know, devastates families, leads to a lot of domestic violence. The money that even the women earn gets basically sucked up and consumed by that so that kids go hungry while their fathers are basically uh, drinking themselves into stupors. So it is a big problem, and there's a huge vote bank in advocating prohibition. But the problem is, for the states, the biggest single source of revenue is alcohol taxes. And you know, if one state institutes prohibition, basically the neighboring states only benefit because there'll be huge amounts of alcohol shops that come up right at the border, the state border, and everybody from the prohibition state just goes to the border and buys their alcohol. The neighboring state gets the taxes, which in turn also increases pressure on the politicians in that other state because suddenly you know, all the benefits of those taxes are going to the people in the neighboring state and people are like, why are our neighbors living so rich and you know, have all these things, these perks that we don't have? So eventually that means, other than Gujarat, it's been basically impossible for states to maintain prohibition. So what often happens is the politicians will promise it and they'll institute it for a year or two around the election. Eventually they can't keep it up because they can't do without those revenues. Right. Sounds like you've been making beer runs over the state line has a lot in common in certain parts of this country as well. So VJ enters the leadership at United Breweries and he flies in the face, not just of the cultural consumption of alcohol, but his whole style, his demeanor, his seeking of attention also flies in the face of traditional attitudes of modesty in India. Can you share a little bit about contrast his attitude toward that of what is considered appropriate in India? Well, it's not always easy to determine exactly what Vijay's attitude is, because, you know, I think that unlike the perception of him as sort of being a party boy, once I, you know, started doing the research, it found out that Vijay carefully cultivated his image as a party boy, but does not actually seem to have been much of a party boy. I mean, like he liked to drink alcohol, but, you know, he was also quite religious. You know, he'd go on certain pilgrimages and there were certain parts of the year where he would abstain from alcohol and from meat, etc. You know, and he would not break those fasts, let's say. He would keep them absolutely religiously. <laughs> and Sorry, which religion is that? Apologies for my ignorance. Well, so he's a Hindu. Uh, in India, Hinduism is the, is the majority religion, over 80% Hindus. But it's not completely accurate to call Hinduism a religion because it's actually a huge panoply of religions. And people you know, express their religious practice in many, many different ways. You could even say millions of ways. I mean, there are huge amounts of gods and different traditions. So 
is sort of a smorgasbord of traditions. And one of the ones that he followed involved sleeping on the floor, being very ascetic for at least a month, month and a half per year, going on pilgrimages to certain holy sites, not drinking, abstaining from various other sort of indulgences, let's say. But, you know, he kept that very strongly. It wasn't something that he deviated from. Also, even when he'd have these fantastic parties, which were well-publicized on his yachts, etc., he would often kick off the party and all these fabulous people would be there being photographed and whatever. And then he would go downstairs and actually call his management team and they would have, you know, four or five hour meetings while the party was going on <laughs> talking about different, different aspects of the business. So he was known to be a complete workaholic and most of his work happened at night. In that sense, considered to be a quite hard guy to work for because he would call, you know, his manager's at any time, 24 hours a day, and expect him to come be at his beck and call. But on the flip side of it, he did pay very well. He listened to people. He was very respectful towards them and gave a lot of bonuses and perks, et cetera. So people appreciated that. You know, Compared to his competitors, he was actually a very generous boss. Sounds like he's crazy like a fox. He puts up an image for those people to consume and see what they want to see. But indeed, he's really motivated by running this business pretty efficiently. It could be. I mean, just to get, you know, I didn't really answer your previous question, but it was very much the case that, you know, I think something that that really riled a lot of people in India, particularly on the conservative side and the religious side, was that Vijay, you know, actually was very openly enjoying his life and he had no qualms about it. He loved spending money. He loved, you know, having a wild, extravagant celebrations at which there would always be a lot of scantily clad young women, musicians playing, you know, world famous musicians would be called Lionel Richie, Enrique Iglesias, etc., many others. The alcohol, the drinks would be flowing, and everybody appeared to be having a great time. And the marketing of Kingfisher beer was very much based on, you know, uh, up to that point when BJ started marketing Kingfisher, as I said, for all the reasons I mentioned, alcohol was very, it was sort of hush-hush in India. You didn't really kind of flaunt the fact that you drank alcohol. You didn't, in movies, in Bollywood movies, etc., it was always it was always a sign of weakness when people drank. You know, if anybody would be shown drinking movie, it was a sign of their personal corruption and weakness and that they were not able to control themselves. So suddenly here comes Vijay Malia and he's showing people having fun, good-looking young people, healthy-looking. They're on the beach in Goa having a rocking time, you know, that was completely unknown. I mean, nobody would have thought to market alcohol like that in the past. They used to do it in a very sort of oblique way, you know, that would associate it with some kind of aspiration of wealth or sophistication. But this was the first time it was really associated with fun and young people and, you know, a healthy type of lifestyle that could go hand in hand with consuming alcohol. And it was extremely successful. And I think that worried a lot of people I mean, basically, they worried about the youth being corrupted. It goes right back to the sort of reefer madness kind of mindset of the 50s <laughs> in the United States. Right. And it was a very tempting image that he was putting out there. And they just didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to countervail it because you're countervailing it with very somber, almost fire and brimstone type of messaging. And, you know, that might work with heroin, but I don't know if it works with beer, you know, and people <laughs> can experience themselves that, you know, they could have a beer and be perfectly lucid, have a totally normal conversation. And, you know, they're showing young people going to the beach and playing volleyball and all kinds of things. They don't look like they're impaired. So I think there was just a general confusion as to this imagery and these messaging that Vijay Malia really embodied. And I'm not sure they ever found the answer. He cites his justification for starting Kingfisher Airlines the restrictions of advertising alcohol in standard media. So he says, well, I want to create a lifestyle brand to demonstrate what Kingfisher is. Do you believe that that's what his true motivation was? Or do you think he just wanted to start an airline? So first of all, something that we had in earlier versions of the film, but ended up being a little bit extraneous to our, you know, our narrative was that BJ, by all accounts, was quite obsessed with Richard Branson and he was a huge admirer of Richard Branson. He loved the way that Richard Branson embodied his brands. Thought it was a genius the way that Virgin, you know, as a brand was used to sell everything from vodka to air travel to trains to, I mean, internet. I mean, you know, there's so many different brands of Virgin, um, music label, etc. To the extent that he even became obsessed with the color red, which seemed to be very much sort of tip of the hat to Virgin and Richard Branson. And a lot of the publicity stunts that Vijay Malia did were one-to-one -one copies of 
Richard Branson and Virgin. And we had that, you know, in those segments we built for the film, we're literally side by side. The exact same event is happening. One is Kingfisher and one is Virgin. So I think the idea that BJ Malia had was that Kingfisher was a brand that presented the opportunity to do something along the lines of a Virgin that would go far beyond just one or two products, be a whole sort of bouquet of products. And Kingfisher Airlines, you know, I think he very correctly identified there was a huge opportunity in India to have a good quality, low-cost airline to compete with the state monopoly, you know, and the existing carriers, which were very poorly run and the object of a lot of frustration by the traveling public, a good service. And you know, Vijay himself was obsessed with air travel. I mean, he's obsessed with cars, cricket and air travel. Those are his personal obsessions, horse racing. And he followed all of those and, you know, was a huge a player in all of those fields. And he was very, very knowledgeable about the aviation industry. And this is something that a dream he'd been harboring for a long time. Plus, according to everybody that was close to him, I think it rankled him. And we portray that in the film. It rankled him to constantly be sort of disrespected and sort of dismissively referred to as a liquor baron. Plus the fact that his father had started that company. And I think he felt quite disrespected that people felt like, okay, you know, your father handed you a no-lose situation. I mean, selling alcohol in India, once you're in the, in the coven, once you pass the gatekeepers and you're in there selling alcohol, it is basically a no-lose business. I mean, it's the epitome of a no-lose business, in fact. So, you know, a lot of people felt like, okay, you know, you could be the worst businessman in the world and your father gave you this sort of golden ticket and you just continue to play it. And that there was a bit of a perception that Vijay's businesses that he did start tended to not work out very well. But he felt he could really make a big difference by launching this airline, and that's what he did. And it was his dream to have the best airline in the world. And he also, I think, really, and when it launched, and then for the first few years, it was tremendously successful, and I remember it very well. Everybody loved it, and everybody was tripping all over themselves to fly on this airline and rave about it. And you know, it really changed his perception from being a bit of a lightweight into being a man with the Midas touch. And a lot of people who felt they misjudged him actually sort of overcompensated by liking him a lot more than they would have otherwise. And, you know, because they just literally love the airline, especially for the sort of media and cultural and social elite in the country, just not to dread going on an airplane, but to mm -hmm. actually look forward to it and enjoy the experience was such a revolutionary thing, which they had all experienced abroad, but never in India. So, you know, he got a huge amount of credit for that. How did he get into trouble? He got into trouble. Uh, you know, one of the things he did when he started Kingfisher Airlines, he had a very good business plan. He hired very well. I mean, we have uh, Alex Wilcox, who was the first president of Kingfisher Airlines, who he found in California. And he'd been instrumental in starting JetBlue and Southwest Airlines. And, you know, was really a perfect guy to start this airline, you know, on a low-cost model. And, you know, he hired very well. He had a dream team of people, in fact, because, you know, he's a very seductive guy. He could basically convince most people of most anything, you know, and he also painted a picture for Alex and others about the opportunity to start a new airline where you had a growing middle class in India as big or larger than the entire U.S. population that was hungering for this type of service. And there were essentially no worthy competitors in the marketplace. And also, you know, India has several major cities. So it's not like France or, or countries like that, where you have sort of one metropole and all the business take place there. There's a lot of business travel in India. There's a need to fly around the country a lot. So it was a great idea. It was a great opportunity. And had they stuck to the low-cost model, it probably would have been one of the most successful businesses in the world, I would think. And, you know, even today, you know, when I went to Dallas to interview Alex Wilcox, he continues to sort of shake his head and say, you know, if we'd just done what we had planned to do, and oh, I mean, they did do it, but if they had not deviated from that plan, you know, it really would have been possibly, you know, the most successful privately run airline in the world that was not a flag carrier and been an immensely profitable business for VJ and possibly made him, you know, an unassailable legend in the annals of Indian business. Mm. But he sort of bit off more than he could chew. Well, yeah, there was some bad luck involved. I mean, there was the world economic crash. Also, India has been traditionally a country which has been very antagonistic towards the aviation industry. So unlike other countries which view aviation as a sort of pillar of their infrastructure, India has traditionally viewed aviation as a luxury product or luxury service and taxed it very highly, not subsidized the industry, not given them assistance 
So even before Kingfisher Airlines started, a lot of people, including people in our film, you know, told DJ, don't touch the airline business in India because different levels of government view you either as a piggy bank or as an adversary of sorts. And, you know, the politicians in India fly for free with their entourages on Air India. <laughs> wow. The flag carrier. So they are actually quite invested in not encouraging private aviation because, you know, they basically have their own, you know, they fly for free everywhere and all their families do and all their friends do. There's a major conflict of interest there. But, you know, the Indian economy had really been suffering because of a very, very poor level of service from the state airlines. So, you know, there's a great opportunity, as I said. But then Vijay, you know, he was so encouraged, let's say, or let's say hoodwinked perhaps by the initial enthusiasm for Kingfisher Airlines, which was great and people loved it, you know. But at the end of the day, Indians are very price sensitive. So they're not going to pay 50% more to fly on one airline over the other. If they do, it will be the top bosses that might do that. But the real business is in the middle managers and everything flying all over the country. So they're not going to fly their middle managers for 50% more. They probably wouldn't fly them for 20% more. If there's a cheaper airline, no matter how bad it is, they'll use that. So one of the things that VJ, you know, messed up on is actually putting a huge amount of luxury services into the, you know, he deviated from the low cost model. He put in a first class, but even an economy class or Kingfisher class, as he called it, they have a lot of extra services, very, very high quality food and drink. And the costs were extremely high. And if you tried to raise the prices on the tickets, then you'd have a lot of empty seats. And then the fuel price went from uh, whatever, $48 to $130. And there was no relief forthcoming from the government. And other airlines, which sort of had better political connections than he did, started sabotaging his airline. So it was a combination of bad decisions. He took on a huge amount of debt to acquire another airline, which was a really poor decision, bought tons of planes, some of which couldn't even land in India. So there were a lot of rash, poor decisions and a lot of bad luck, and plus being undermined by some very powerful forces. Combination of all of these things ended up essentially grounding the airline. But the amount of debt that had been taken on, it's funny because VJ had failed businesses before, and he'd sort of gotten out of them at reasonable times, and he could have done it. Even until pretty late in the day, he could have gotten out of Kingfisher Airlines and still saved face and emerged relatively well financially as well. But he just became obsessed with this one airline, and that was the ruin of him. What is the crime that he is accused of? That sounds like a simple question. It's not totally clear in many cases because in terms of his extradition, the way extradition works is that the crime that the Indian government will have to make the case to the British government to send him back to India for has to be a crime in the UK. So there were various financial irregularities that have been suggested in terms of loans that were taken out by Kingfisher Airlines from private sector banks in India, which are notorious for having a lot of bad loans. Those banks have to be bailed out for their bad loans by the taxpayer. And the political class in India, and I say political class very intently because people often say, well, there's this government or that government. And I do think it's a political class, you know, has tended to use these uh, public sector banks as a piggy bank for their friends. And not because they're to do nice things for their friends. They also benefit financially from the transactions. So Vijay Malia borrowed a lot of money from private sector banks. Many others have borrowed far more money, but Vijay Malia was a sort of an enemy of the political class particularly the current establishment, and also because of his lifestyle, because of his prominence, he was a very good target to go after as a sort of fig leaf for continuing to do the exact same stuff now that was done earlier. Many people close to him or admirers of his say he's a scapegoat. I think that that's probably true. At the same time, that doesn't mean he's an innocent man. You know, There does seem to be evidence of French financial irregularities, in particular him taking money from some companies he controlled and moving them to other entities he controlled, which is, of course, illegal because those are publicly traded companies. Mm -hmm. So whatever you do with the money you take out of them, it doesn't really matter. You actually affect stealing money from that company. Uh, and that is you know, considered to be a form of fraud and or money laundering. What are bankruptcy laws like in India? Well, this is actually a really important question you know, that, that people don't ask enough. You know, the bankruptcy laws have been quite dysfunctional, and that has created a situation where you have these huge debt burdens that are not being resolved 
over time. And, you know, I'm not an expert in that particular area by any means, but, you know, I have heard a lot of commentators say this is a crucial problem, that the bankruptcy laws are outmoded and not fit for purpose. And because of that, you end up enabling failed businesses far longer than they should be, in part because a lot of the creditors want to keep them afloat because they're not going to have any hope of seeing their investment, even part of their investment, come back to them because in the current constellation of bankruptcy laws. So, you know, that has been identified as a major problem. You had the cooperation of Vijay's son in making this film. What story do you think they wanted to get out? Uh, Vijay's son appears in the film. Uh, there was discussion about having Vijay in the film. In the end, we didn't have him in the film. I did meet him. So Vijay's son, Siddharth, was effectively the family's representative in our discussions and had a lot of conversations with him. He actually lives in the United States. He lives in Los Angeles. We interviewed him in London, which is where Vijay is, obviously. So, I, you know, I think they expressed very clearly that they've had a lot of bad experiences with the media and they felt they've been quite unfairly treated by the media and that even when they thought they had positive interactions, that the stories that have come out have been unfairly, unduly negative and sort of picked up on certain details and made a big thing out of them. For example, you know, in our film, we have the uh, writer, former Financial Times correspondent, James Crabtree, who wrote a book called The Billionaire Raj about Indian billionaires. In his book, when he met Vijay Malia, even though he speaks very highly of Vijay, he did mention that, you know, while he was meeting him in his house in London, he asked if he could go to the bathroom and he went to the bathroom and, you know, there was a golden toilet. As one has. Gold. Yeah. And he, so he wrote about that and every journalist who covered that book even though it was a very minor incident in the book, but every journalist who covered that book harped on that and every story led with that. So, you know, they felt like they just couldn't catch a break. Everything was sort of rigged against them and therefore they were quite hesitant to participate in this film. So it took a fair amount of convincing that they were going to be able to say their piece. Of course, you could not guarantee them any kind of positive coverage, nor would I even want to. But effectively, you know, just I did say... You can look at my previous work. You can see what kind of filmmaker I am. It is Netflix. Definitely are not coming into this with a preconceived agenda. And we want to present a fair and accurate picture of this human journey. And that I think they appreciated that. And they could see also in the preliminary interviews I did that it wasn't just about the current legal problems or any particular scandal or what have you. You know, we're really trying to paint a picture of, a, as I said, a comprehensive picture of a human journey, a very interesting one that actually goes even before Vijay was born, back to his his roots. So, and you know, those people have contacted me actually, including Siddharth, after the film has been released and thanked me for actually portraying a, a very fair picture. So, which is good. I mean, that was something that I was striving to do. Yeah, and it is a human journey. And it's so perplexing when people of regular or normal or just even more modest means than Vijay looks at the sky as one journalist in the documentary says, he was already wildly affluent. That should have been enough. What was his classic flaw? Was it greed? Was it hubris or incompetence? What do you think led him astray? You know better than I do. Uh, people of vast wealth very rarely have the mindset that enough is enough. You know, I mean, uh, I think VJ, uh, I don't think VJ was primarily motivated by money, to be honest. He's a kind of person, unlike a lot of billionaires, you couldn't really say he's a self-made man. You know, he was born into a wealthy family. It wasn't clear he was going to inherit his father's empire, but he did. And I don't think he was ever, even if he lived relatively modestly with his mother in Calcutta during those times when he wasn't with his father, I don't think he ever had any reason to worry about money, even for a moment. He's been surrounded by vast wealth. And like a lot of rich people, Vijay is convinced that he's smarter than everybody else and that the huge amounts of wealth are sort of his sign of his intelligence and his capability. He has a lot of confidence. And I think he had a very good business model for Kingfisher Airlines, and he's a very smart man. He certainly would have been aware that from a business point of view, if he'd stuck to the low-cost model, it would have been the best. But I don't think money and business was his main motivation. He wanted that wow factor. He wanted jaws to drop, praise him to the heavens. Mm. Uh, which they wouldn't do if he just had a very efficient, well-run, low-cost airline. Mm -hmm. They'd say, wait, great, good job, pat on the back. He wanted people to be blown away and to think that he was a genius. And, you know, that was a fatal flaw. If there was a fatal flaw, that's what it was. 
he couldn't be content with actually running a good business. And the thing is, he could have had both possibly if he just run his business and stabilized the business for a period of time and then maybe branched out with a new associated brand or whatever that was a more luxurious version. But he was just very impatient. He wanted everything yesterday. And even the people that worked with him, I mean, we have one of his closest friends who is a fashion designer who designed all the uniforms for the airline in the film. And he says, you know, I mean, BJ would call him up at night and say, bring me the designs tomorrow morning. He's like, how am I supposed to do that? You know? <laughs> I mean, I've gone home from work. It's the evening and you're asking me to come in at eight o'clock in the morning and, and bring you designs. I mean, BJ just, he wanted everything, like I said, yesterday. And that impatience, I think, combined with not focusing on a successful business, but wanting to sort of impress the hell out of people combined to uh, cause his downfall. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. The episode we're talking about is The King of Good Times, part of the Bad Boy Billionaires India series on Netflix. And I really enjoyed that episode specifically. But while I have you, Dylan, I really want to ask you also about your award-winning documentary, Fire in the Blood. How did you come to make this film? First, I would tell your listeners is also on Netflix if they're interested. Uh, Fire in the Blood essentially is a story of a very interesting group of people who came together to break the effective blockade of low-cost antiretroviral drugs to treat HIV AIDS in the global south. And particularly, there was a desperate need in sub-Saharan Africa, which was the epicenter of the pandemic, for antiretroviral drugs, which at the time were only available in sort of monopoly patented form. And only 8,000 people in the entire continent of Africa were being treated with antiretroviral drugs at the turn of the millennium. Those people were all sort of, you know, the family of dictators, <laughs> minuscule number mm-hmm. of people. The need was great. You know, we had sort of tens of millions of cases in Africa. So the film depicts the extent of the carnage that was going on because people couldn't access those drugs, even though they were available in certain parts of the world, such as India, Thailand, Brazil, where, you know, there had been a sort of an effort on the part of developing country governments to make sure their own people were treated. It was a question of how could that also be replicated in Africa? You know, there was a lot of resistance from Western governments, which were essentially working on behalf of multinational drug companies, who, of course, as always, were motivated by maximizing their profits and extending their monopolies. So very interesting story. And we estimate that about 10 or 12 million people died unnecessarily because of the lack of those affordable medications until that blockade was broken. And we tell the story of how the blockade was broken in the film. And the way I came to that film is actually, I initially read about one of the characters in the film in a newspaper article, and it turned out that he was related to somebody I knew very well. And then I got to meet him, and through him I met some of the other characters, just became kind of personally obsessed with this topic, not with a view to making a film about it, just you know, was very interested in it. It seemed like a huge episode in history, which I hadn't really heard about. And I was pretty shocked to learn that there was, you know, there was no book about it. There was no film about it. It's something that killed, you know, as I mentioned, around about double the number of people as the Holocaust. We all know how many films and books have been done about the Holocaust, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing about this story. And sort of I decided it would be very, very important to make this. And I actually tried to talk some other documentary filmmakers into doing it because I wasn't a documentary filmmaker at the time. I was working on the fiction side. But everybody said, you know, it will take many years. So I ended up doing it myself. It was a real struggle. It was very difficult, but it's something I'm very proud of. And it has had a huge impact uh, and been very influential and continues to screen all over the world years after its release. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. It was pretty shocking to learn that a year's worth of antiretroviral drugs cost $15,000 per person per year before all this happened, which pretty much puts them out of the reach of everyone in Africa, except the very, very privileged. How do they go about knocking this down to where the average African could be treated? The production of medicine is actually very cheap. The price of medicine is based theoretically on the amount of the research, which is difficult to ascertain. But, you know, many of the most expensive medications had very little money spent on the research. The pricing tends to be proportionate to the urgency of getting that drug and also sometimes the rareness of the disease. So, you know, drugs for rare forms of cancer are incredibly expensive. If you're talking about a drug that can save somebody's life, like an antiretroviral drug, it also tends to be very expensive. It's not really a function of how much money went into the research. Sometimes these drugs are acquired very cheaply by the companies which market them. 
And then, of course, we all know about generic drugs. Now, generic drugs usually come onto the market when the patents expire on the brand name drugs and are exact copies of the branded drugs. So in India, there was a different law in place uh, whereby you could make a generic drug by reverse engineering the drug as long as your process was different, you could have a generic drug which could be very affordable, and therefore India ends up having the lowest-cost medications in the world, which has been extremely important over the last 40, 50 years, you know, changing the whole health outlook in the country. And it's also been important because unlike Brazil and Thailand, other places where there are big government concerns that sort of keep medicine prices low through government manufacture, in India, it's a private manufacturer. And the benefit of that is that, obviously, through competition, prices go down, the process gets streamlined. But over and above that, you know, that enables those privately manufactured generic drugs from India to be exported to other countries, such as African countries, whereas the Brazilian and Thai drugs could not be exported because they were made with a public health mandate in those countries and, you know, export was not going to be permissible for those drugs because they were publicly manufactured. So the challenge then, you know, once that all had been identified, the challenge then became, okay, the lowest cost available antiretroviral drugs are the Indian generic drugs. How can we get them to Africa? You know, there was a huge effort on the part, as I said, of Western governments and drug companies to stop those affordable drugs from reaching Africa. And it wasn't so much that they thought they already had all the customers that they were going to have for their expensive drugs, which is a very small number. And, you know, hardly anybody could afford those drugs. So it wasn't like we're going to lose customers because those very rich customers are going to continue to buy those branded drugs. It was more a PR problem where the drug companies felt that if people in Western countries were finding out that drugs were being made available at a very low cost in Africa, that they would demand that drug prices be dropped in Western countries, which subsequently turned out to be not true because actually the antiretroviral drugs continue to be very expensive in Western countries right. even now, although the low-cost drugs have been in Africa now for almost 20 years. That whole rationale was completely false. So as I'm watching the film, I'm thinking to myself, okay, obviously this is a human tragedy that needs to be addressed, but what is a fair return on investment for R&D that pharmaceutical companies should be allowed to enjoy? Well, let's put it this way. I think if you ask the question a different way, so I think we can agree, and I think even the pharmaceutical companies would agree, that life-saving medicine is not the same type of product as many other types of product. So, you know, nobody's going to die if they can't get an iPhone. <laughs> my son's making a pretty compelling case that he might die if he doesn't <laughs> yeah. get one or the latest toaster or what have you you know i mean there are patents on all kinds of things obviously but now if you're talking about life-saving medicine which is i would say scientists would argue is part of the commonwealth of knowledge so everything that is developed in the realm of science builds on previous knowledge of course there's a big cost associated with research and development of drugs nowhere near as big as the drug companies claim because obviously they use that rationale to price their drugs at very high levels the point i think is that everybody can agree life-saving medicines are not the same as other types of product you know they should be available to people that need them mm -hmm. but you know somebody has to pay for this research and somebody has to also make sure that the the companies that make the medicine have a healthy profit margin so that they continue to do the work that they're doing so now, how do you find the balance in those things? People that are, you know, active on this issue, you know, many of them would say the system that we have right now is just a very poorly designed system because it essentially finances the research by having extremely high-priced medicine for a very long patent period, which essentially prices out the vast majority of the world's population. Some people, like in certain countries let's say Canada, would might benefit from the fact that they might be poor, but there is a public healthcare system that is going to provide those medicines to them. Same would be true for many European countries and to a large degree in the United States as well, depending on if you're eligible for certain government programs, Medicaid, Medicare, etc. But it's a very inefficient system in the sense that you're basically entrusting privately run profit-oriented companies to develop your medicines for you which is not a great idea because they, of course, are going to focus on medicines that are highly profitable and ignore the ones that are not highly profitable, although the public health need might not correspond with their profit motive. So that means you have a lot of public health problems which are not adequately addressed because they don't fit into the profit 
automotive system of pharmaceuticals. It also means, like the private healthcare system in the United States, incredibly inefficient in terms of you know, the value that is delivered at the end is just a small portion of the money that goes into it because there's so many people siphoning off, taking their cut. So much goes to marketing, so much goes for legal services, administration is a huge part of it, executive pay. It's a very poorly run system. And the outcome is also that most of the risky research is actually publicly funded, but then it ends up being sort of bought by pharmaceutical companies from universities who are doing the publicly funded research. And then they sell the public back the product at an extremely inflated price. Mm-hmm. It's a really poor deal for almost anybody for the American taxpayer, because the American taxpayer is putting tens of billions of dollars into research on essential medicines every year and still paying the highest price for the resulting <laughs> products of anybody in the world. That's why we drive to Canada. <laughs> Yeah, well, is that really what you want? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I mean, I think if there's public investment in the research that the people who are the trustees of the public wealth and the public interest, which is basically the political class, again, you know, it would be incumbent upon them to say, look, we finance this research. You cannot charge us more than a certain amount for these drugs, and certainly not more than people in other countries are paying. You know, So now if you have a drug that is mostly developed with U.S. taxpayer money, and the price to the U.S. taxpayer of the end product is at least double what it is in any other country in the world. Now, that's a big problem. And then you have politicians from both major political parties in the United States passing laws saying that the U.S. government cannot negotiate prices on medicine. Now, why would they do that? Yeah. You're throwing away billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money a year where every other big purchaser negotiates prices. Because if you're buying in bulk, of course, you're going to negotiate prices. But you know that's a sop to the to the pharmaceutical industry, and politicians are all heavily funded. Both parties heavily, heavily funded by the pharmaceutical industry. So it's deeply corrupt, and I don't know that there's an easy solution. But shedding light on it is a big part of finding a solution, because I think I don't know anybody in the United States, any sane taxpayer, who has not got a vested interest in the pharmaceutical business, who would say that it's a good idea that the United States government cannot negotiate drug prices, even though they are probably the biggest single purchaser of drugs in the world, and therefore would theoretically be entitled to the biggest discounts in the world. And those discounts could be used for all kinds of other things, you know, for building infrastructure, for improving the education system, improving the overall healthcare system. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, probably at the end of the day. Yeah. So, you know, it's a total scandal. And unfortunately, even the news media in the US, we're talking about the mainstream news media, is either indifferent to these issues or there's a lot of advertising that comes from the biggest singular advertiser of the pharmaceutical industry. I'm not saying that that influences news decisions, but there's no great will on the part of the mainstream media to go after the pharmaceutical industry in the way they should and call the politicians out, you know, and because it's both parties, nobody wants to have that conversation because both parties are doing it. Both parties are benefiting from it. Right. You know, if it was one party, the other party would be singing it from the rooftops, but they're not even films like mine. You know, they actually make very little dent at the end of the day because, you know, people don't know who to go to. Even the NGOs that work in these areas, many of them are on the payroll of big pharma. If you go into their financial records, you find it eventually. So It's the politicians, the academic institutions are selling their patents for hundreds of millions of dollars. The news media, you know, I mean, all of the opinion leaders of society are complicit in this system, including doctors, including pharmacists. So it's very hard for Joe Public to find somebody who's going to uh, express the degree to which the public interest is is being subverted and undermined in favor of drug company profits. Because, like I said, all the opinion leaders are complicit in the money machine that generates those profits. I guess now is a good time to mention that this program is brought to you by GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. It's happened to me. <laughs> as you come to think of it, or as you start to think about the problem, when you're watching the news, for those of us that actually still watch news, you think about yep. the ads that you see. They're all for pharma companies. I mean, probably thirty percent plus. So. Well, Fire in the Blood, it's a great documentary. I learned a lot. Shed light on the problem you did. Dylan, it's been really fun to talk to you. If people want to find out more about you, where can they direct their searches on the internet? Well, I guess Google. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff out there that I've been, you know, I've obviously given lots of interviews and don't have a personal website, but I'm on all the social media platforms. So 
people can find me pretty easily. Fantastic. Dylan Gray, director of The King of Good Times from Bad Boy Billionaire series on Netflix and Fire in the Blood. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Well, there you have it. If you haven't seen Bad Boy Billionaires India yet, I strongly recommend it. And of course, you should start with The King of Good Times, not only because it's the first in the series, but it's also the best. Don't tell anybody else I said that. And because now you know Dylan, right? So there you go. Watch The King of Good Times tonight. Also, check out his film, Fire in the Blood, about the AIDS crisis in the third world. Incredibly thought-provoking and challenging on a lot of different levels. Let's get to takeaways. My number one takeaway has nothing to do with the money lessons, but Netflix is awesome. I dig watching these global video platforms create content for the world. Yes, of course, the Super Bowl is a global media event, but these people are producing films and TV series with the intent of entertaining people from all different cultures in many different markets around the world. Who knows? Maybe it could even bring us together in the long run. I don't know. Anyway, I just thought that was cool. Netflix is awesome. Great job. Now, these two do relate to money. Enough is enough is my second takeaway. This constant theme on the show, not only does having gratitude and a sense of enoughness lead to more happiness, it also keeps you out of jail. It is a critical key to achieving happiness in life to understand what you want and how much is enough. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be ambitious. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try new things or take a chance here and there. But for God's sake, you don't have to have the world's most incredible airline to feel successful. Or maybe you do, and then you go to prison. That brings me to takeaway number three. Don't let the looks of other people deceive you. You have no idea what's going on in somebody's financial house behind the curtain. They might represent themselves with bling and incredible sports cars and whatever else, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got a steady financial picture at home, especially when it comes to the danger of comparison. A lot of the times the people we compare ourselves to are illusions. It is smoke and mirrors. Don't be fooled, my friends. All right. Thank you for sticking around all the way to the end. If you have a second rate and review crazy money, I sure would appreciate it. In the meantime, have a great day. Have a great week. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.